I have been putting forward something that I've called the new Grand Trunk Road Initiative, which would link Kabul to Dhaka, which would make Pakistan such a key hub and a link between traditional South Asia and the new greater South Asia, so that all its neighbors would become dependent on it, whether it's Iran or Afghanistan or India or Bangladesh. Uh, they would all be dependent on this key element, which is Pakistan, through which trade can occur and where joint ventures can go. And it can then take advantage of CPEC to create a manufacturing export base in Pakistan, uh, which will then feed the Middle East and, and uh, the literal states of the Indian Ocean. Hello and welcome to another episode of Pakistanomy. This is a special episode for us because we have with us uh, Shuja Nawaz Saab, who needs no introduction and it's an honor to have him here uh, joining us. He recently published a book, The Battle for Pakistan, The Bitter uh, U.S. Friendship in a Tough Neighborhood. And I always tell people, particularly younger folks who want to learn about Pakistan and, and last few years in terms of what's happened there to read Shujana Wasab's uh, books and his articles. In particular, I would say that when I began my own journey, um, reading, learning by doing the Pakistan Army's experience with counterinsurgency was an eye-opener and something that set a solid foundation to understanding what was going on in Pakistan. So we're, we have him here. We're going to have a wide discussion about events in Pakistan and the U.S.-Pakistan relationship and other geopolitical developments. So Shujah Saab, welcome to Pakistanomy. Thank you very much, Azhar. It's uh, an honor to be with you. I want to start with something that I have uh, had a moment of clarity on over the last few years in particular, um, studying Pakistan's history since independence, is that the failure I personally have identified is, is that while Pakistan has picked uh, sides in great power competitions, mainly the United States um, in the Cold War um, and after 9-11 as well, and now increasingly going into China's camp, that the country has not been able to extract uh, long-term developmental or geoeconomic gains from these choices. On the flip side, when you look at a South Korea or an Israel, you see that those countries in particular uh, were able to pick a side, but then use that for their own developmental objectives as well, and really grew strongly and became economic and technological powerhouses in their own sense. Is that a fair assessment um, that uh, that I've come up with, or do you disagree with that? And would love to hear your own view in terms of the choices Pakistan has made over a long period of time and their impact on the country's overall trajectory. Uzair, I think you've, you've hit upon something that has been at the foundation of Pakistan's tremendous success as well as its, its travails over uh, the period since independence. And uh, the key to this, based on my own modest approach of studying the history of Pakistan and its relationship with major powers, has been that Pakistan uh, has been unable to have a long-term game plan, uh, that it has not focused on developing itself as a hub of economic, political stability uh, and growth. And uh, the rulers of Pakistan have sought short-term gains, uh, primarily for their own benefit and less so for the country as a whole, and tried to manipulate events and uh, institutions within the country to that end, as well as take advantage of their strategic location for rent seeking, but over the short term from their major partners. And the initial major partner was the United States, obviously, and then China. Um, but the gains to the country have not been as real as the potentials that Pakistan had. It was well on its path uh, in the 60s to being a, a leader in the developing world. Uh, in fact, there was a very famous World Bank uh, study done by a friend of mine, Shahid Yusuf, uh, where he looked at all the world development reports and looking back, trying to see 
which developing countries had done the best overall. And China came out number one in terms of growth. Uh, and this was up to 2003, I think. Uh, and Pakistan came in a close second. So uh, it was only after that, that when you start expanding the, uh, the period and the Indian miracle occurred, where they opened up their economy to emulate Pakistan's economy under Manmohan Singh. Uh, when they opened up their economy, they shot past Pakistan and became the second uh, highest uh, in terms of development uh, right after China. So Pakistan has, uh, as, as some glib commentators have said, unfortunately never missed an opportunity to miss an opportunity. Uh, it was always poised to take off. Uh, using the Rostovian model uh, for economic development, but it never quite made that breakthrough. And I don't think that the battle is lost even now because uh, the strategic location of Pakistan has not changed and it won't change. Uh, and its, its youthful population uh, is still there and it will change over time. So I think the country has another decade or two in which it can get its act together, get the education, health, and uh, infrastructure sorted out, and uh, concentrate less on unproductive expenditures uh, to develop its own economy and its society in a way that it doesn't have to rely solely on military weaponry for its defense and security. So do you think that, I mean, it's interesting that you talk about it has still a decade or two. Do you think that that's a make or break moment? Because when I look at sort of Pakistan's demographics, you have a wide base at the pyramid, right? Which is often called a population dividend or a dividend that's about to be unleashed for growth. And we've seen that around the world. But that is also, in my view, a ticking time bomb, right? Because if you have a 20-year-old today, uh, fast forward 15 years with an economy that grows at 3%, then all of a sudden that that is a terrible, terrible outcome. So would it be fair in your view to then say that the next decade or two decades are basically a make or break moment for this country because it has already fallen behind its peer economies and in fact um, is struggling to meet the aspirations and ambitions of its youth uh, that really is yearning for change? Absolutely. And, and now with the COVID pandemic uh, and uh, economists like Roma, the Bell laureate, have said that we may not come out of the ill effects of this pandemic till 2028. The next decade will be critical because Pakistan is now in the negative in terms of growth uh, on an annual basis. It had already fallen from the 7-8% average that it had at one time and that it needs in order to stay ahead of the, the population curve. Um, it, need, it needs to create, uh, on a regular basis, more than a million new jobs a year. And, and it's been jobs. And it will lose jobs because of the pandemic. So you're right, the next decade is going to be critical. And it's not just a question of, of stabilizing the situation, it's also a question of preparing for what the world will need in the next decade and the decade after that, and having Pakistan poised to be that trade hub, that economic hub, and the security bulwark in the region, which the region needs um, as a hub for trade, for instance, between Central Asia, Afghanistan, Pakistan, and India, between Iran, Pakistan, and India, and between China and the Middle East and the world. So there are still, in my belief, incredible opportunities for Pakistan. Uh, and it has the people, it has the brain power, it has the middle class, it has the business class, um, something like 50 million people in the middle class uh, that can provide uh, the engine of growth for Pakistan's economy. So I want to pivot to the initial point that we talked about, right? Pakistan's strategic choices and, and the great power competitions that it has gotten itself involved in. And clearly we are seeing a realignment happen around the world, around uh, the United States and China. We, yesterday, Prime Minister Modi spoke here in Washington to audiences in Washington about India's investment climate and why the United States should invest there, both in defense and other sectors 
Um, Pakistan clearly has uh, been entering the Chinese orbit over time with CPEC and other investments. Um, how do you see the U.S.-China confrontation uh, impacting Pakistan and how or what would be your advice to the policymakers in Islamabad and Rawalpindi in terms of how do they navigate these challenges, not only to be uh, in the right camp in the long term, so to speak, but also to fix that historic mistake, which is missing the opportunity every time in terms of uh, picking choices or making decisions that benefit Pakistanis as a whole. Uzair, I don't think Pakistan should be making a choice in this case. Its choice should be for Pakistan itself, uh, rather than uh, going into one camp or the other. Geography dictates that it has good relationships with its neighbors, and the major neighbor is China, and of course India, and then Iran and Afghanistan. And you also have a neighborhood in the Middle East, uh, in the Gulf states and Saudi Arabia. So Pakistan must have strong ties with all of them and stable ties with all of them. Uh, but the United States is still a superpower and it's not a question of Pakistan joining the U.S. Uh, against China because that is not going to be to Pakistan's advantage. I don't think the Chinese have, are asking Pakistan to make that choice either. They have never asked Pakistan to make that choice. This is an issue that Pakistan has used or Pakistani short-sighted politicians have used from time to time, in my view, uh, as a way of scaring the United States, but it has the opposite effect. It convinces people, particularly in Washington and particularly on the Hill, that Pakistan is unreliable and that it belongs to the other side and that maybe uh, we should drop Pakistan and make it irrelevant to our, our choices in the world going forward. I don't think that would suit Pakistan. Now, within Pakistan, there are still very powerful long-term relationships and ties with the United States. And it is to Pakistan's advantage, its economic advantage, as well as its military advantage, to retain those ties uh, without losing its sovereignty. I think the mistake that we made uh, in the country in the 50s and 60s was to give the impression that Pakistan's leaders were willing to barter away their sovereignty in order to get support from Uncle Sam. And the most recent example of that was President Musharraf, who I think sold the country very cheaply uh, when the United States invaded Afghanistan. And I think uh, we should learn from that experience. And that is something that I've covered in my new book about how that was done and, and why that was done. Uh, and, and why Pakistan is still suffering the after effects of that relationship. So I want to pivot to your book, uh, since you've mentioned that, and it is a good segue to that. A couple of things that really stood out to me in this fascinating account uh, was that, you know, the first being the United States has, in fact, contributed immensely to Pakistan's development, a story that, you know, most Pakistanis miss whether it is in the 60s and the 70s and, and soon thereafter, or even in the post 9-11 uh, world. And I want you to tell our audiences a bit about what have been the United States' contributions to Pakistan in a positive way. We all know the negatives, um, especially in the sense that, you know, it is the largest export market for Pakistani goods, for example, right? And so I think Pakistanis miss that context when they look at the United States as as the country that has caused immense damage, but they forget uh, the contributions that have been made. So I want you to touch a bit upon uh, what those benefits have been over the years. I'm happy to do that. Uh, first off, I think it's very important to know that this is not simply a military-to-military -military relationship, uh, because a lot of people have defined this relationship in those terms, inside the country as well as outside. I think that's the wrong emphasis. Uh, the relationship goes way back when the United States uh, was coming onto the global stage as a superpower, um, displacing Britain as the empire was being folded and uh, Britain was retreating from its overseas colonies. The United States stepped in and, and took over large swaths of, of uh, territory in the world in terms of its influence, in terms of its aid relationships. Pakistan benefited from them 
And a lot of people don't know, for instance, that the United States invested heavily in developing the bureaucratic uh, superstructure within Pakistan, particularly on the economic side. You had the Harvard Advisory Group that came to Pakistan and, and worked with the Planning Commission during Ayub Khan's days uh, and trained many of the top flight economists of the time uh, who then went on to global fame uh, and uh, came to the World Bank, to the IMF, uh, and to the United Nations in, in uh, different parts of, of the institution, and uh, whose names are still recognized the world over. Uh, people like Moeen Qureshi, people like Mahbub al uh, people like Sartaj Aziz, uh, Shahid Javed Barki, uh, any number of people, Khaled Ikram, Arvez Hassan, uh, people, uh, the, the last two, for instance, Khalid Ikram and Parvez Hassan, were the people that did the design of the development plan for Korea that put them on the path that they uh, have now succeeded in becoming a major economic force in the world. Uh, so you had all these people that worked with the United States uh, in a direct relationship with the Harvard Advisory Group in a direct relationship with the Ford Foundation, in a direct relationship with what then used to be an independent US aid agency, which was not a subsidiary of State Department, and which was not operating under the premise that if you do this for us, we will do this for you. It wasn't transactional at all. Uh, you had iconic figures like uh, Joseph Wheeler, and Joe Wheeler is still alive, 95 years old, still active, still talking about Pakistan, even from his retirement in, in uh, the Northeast of the United States. He became later chairman of the Development Assistance Committee. So Pakistan had this great amount of intellectual uh, benefit from this relationship. It also benefited from enormous key infrastructure, which the United States set up in Pakistan. You had the Warsak Dam, you had the Mangla Dam, the Tarbela Dam, and the United States became a key element in persuading the World Bank and other international agencies to set up these investments which would benefit Pakistan in the long term and maintain its position as a major granary of the world. Uh, in addition, the United States introduced Pakistan to nuclear technology. Uh, they had the first peaceful uh, training reactor at Nilor. Uh, which is still standing and still operating. It was designed by Edward Darrell Stone, famous architect who did the Kennedy Center and Chandigarh and the, the, the second capital in, uh, in Dhaka, uh, second capital of, East, of uh, Pakistan. Uh, and there, uh, the United States helped the Pakistan Atomic Energy Commission uh, and its staff in develop the skills for peaceful research and use of, of nuclear for energy purposes. Uh, if anything, that laid the basis for Pakistan's eventual move into nuclear weaponry and uh, as, a, as a, a counterbalance to what India was doing across the border. Uh, in addition, the United States, enormous uh, investments in education. They helped set up the Lahore University of Management Sciences, uh, they helped reinvigorate the Foreman Christian College, which we shouldn't forget was an American Presbyterian school uh, in the olden days. Mm -hmm. And my own alma mater, Gordon College, was the first co-ed college in, in what is now Pakistan, uh, which was set up in the late 19th century, again by American Presbyterian uh, ministers, uh, and was one of the top flight institutions, still Mr. Bhutto nationalized it and reduced it to nothing. So uh, the United States has always played this role uh, when it wants to help, but it has failed. And this is what I describe in my book in both the military side as well as on the civilian side, it has failed when it tries to exact some kind of quid pro quo mm. from the country that it is trying to help. Because that reduces the investment of the country in the joint ventures and, and reduces the ability of the people of the country to benefit from that assistance. 
So a follow-up question I have on this, and I would love your perspective because it's something I have wondered about over the years as well. It is a long list of contributions, right? But when you grow up, even I myself growing up in Pakistan, studying Pakistan studies or Pakistani history, uh, were always told that Pakistan lost, for example, 1971 because America betrayed Pakistan or after the Afghan Jihad, America abandoned Pakistan or even the post 9-11 world that America was playing a double game with Pakistan. From your point of view, I'm just curious as to why is that the view not only in mainstream Pakistan, but even among uh, senior Pakistani politicians, policymakers, both civilian and military? Like what causes this, uh, this you know, conflict in terms of the United States' perception and some of the contributions it has made in the country? Well, first off, on the politicians, these are the same politicians that WikiLeaks has exposed as going to the United States and making deals behind their backs or going to the United States and saying, please protect us from the military. They're about to launch a coup. So um, I don't uh, accord a lot of respect for those views. I think I give much more credence to the views of the people of Pakistan. And I mention in my book that in the Pew polls, uh, which give you a fairly useful trend line over time, uh, there is that one famous question which people in Pakistan answer that, you know, the biggest threat to Pakistan comes from the United States, even more than mm -hmm. India. And that's because the U.S. looms so large uh, on, on the, over the horizon of Pakistan. Uh, but there's another question that is also asked in the Pew polls, and uh, that is never really properly highlighted either by Americans or Pakistanis. And that is that almost six out of 10 Pakistanis who were polled by Pew in the same polls say that they want better relations with the United States. And nobody has tried to unpack why that is the case. Is it because they want to travel to the US? Is it because they look at the US as that shining city on the hill that they want to emulate in terms of democracy. Uh, what is it about the United States that the people of Pakistan, not the rulers, appreciate and therefore they would like to have better relations with the United States? Now, if six out of 10 said they would really want to destroy this relationship and back away from the US, then I would, I would worry. But I think it's the people of Pakistan, the, the, the middle class, the business community that is looking to the US as part of their global outreach. And it's the people of Pakistan, some 11 million of whom are now in the world outside in the diaspora, who are keeping the country afloat, you know, with their remittances. Yes. Monthly basis uh, or an annual basis far exceeding anything that the United States or anyone else has ever given Pakistan. I used to go to Congress and testify on the Hill and tell them to be modest in their thinking about Pakistan because they would talk about the Kerry Luger Berman bill, which was great, 7.5 billion, five years, first time the US was making a longer term commitment, you know, a five year commitment for a sitting president and for the Congress was, was great. However, when I pointed out to them that that translated to $1.5 billion a year for Pakistan, whereas at that time remittances were in the, in the teens uh, or approaching the teens in terms of, uh, of billions. And so uh, I said, how do you compare this on an annual basis? It's not even one-tenth of what Pakistanis, ordinary Pakistanis, in Europe, in the Middle East, in North America, are sending back to their country. So there has to be a certain modesty, I think, in this, uh, in appreciating this relationship. And again, I come back to my very first answer to your question. It has to be a question of looking at what works best for Pakistan for the longer run, not for the short run. And how does Pakistan equip itself in order to take advantage of the changing global landscape. Now, I believe fervently that South Asia has the capacity, if it integrates itself as an economic unit, and by South Asia, I mean 
not just India, Pakistan, Nepal, Sri Lanka, Bangladesh, Bhutan, etc. I also include Iran and, and Afghanistan and uh, going into Central Asia because these are traditionally the areas of, of the globe that have been interlinked culturally, politically, economically over the centuries. And I have been putting forward something that I've called the new Grand Trunk Road Initiative, which would link Kabul to Dhaka, which would make Pakistan such a key hub and a link between traditional South Asia and the new greater South Asia, so that all its neighbors would become dependent on it, whether it's Iran or Afghanistan or India or Bangladesh. Uh, they would all be dependent on this key element, which is Pakistan, through which trade can occur and where joint ventures can go. And it can then take advantage of CPEC to create a manufacturing export base in Pakistan, uh, which will then feed the Middle East and, and uh, the literal states of the Indian Ocean. So I think that is the future of Pakistan, which is beckoning. And you need not just a strong leadership, but you need a very powerful involvement on the part of civil society, particularly the business community in Pakistan. I believe they've done brilliantly when they've traveled overseas. The business community has made great investments in Africa, in the Middle East, in North America and Britain. Uh, they could be making even greater investments at home and making multiples uh, so that you'd have more billionaires than you can dream of in Pakistan. And it should be the case. Well, that's the interesting thing, right? Like, for example, I was reading yesterday or day before someone pointed out to me that if you look at the map, Gujarat is closer to Oman than it is to Calcutta. But it is a shame that Gujarat to Sindh trade or Gujarat to Karachi trade is non-existent or Lahore to um, Delhi trade is non-existent. Mm -hmm. And that's, again, one of the things I think you're absolutely right about this East-West trade corridor because, A, it's historic linkages, but B, that's where the population centers lie, right? You can just put up the map of South Asia and map the connect the dots in terms of population centers and it flows East-West, not North-South. Pakistan's longitudinal and so CPEC is great to connect Pakistan, but you're never going to get great trade happening into Xinjiang at any point in time, it never has happened. There's not a lot of population there. You have to connect the capitals of South Asia, um, including Iran and Afghanistan, and then moving into Central Asia to benefit from that. But um, I agree that that requires a lot of courage. Um, I want to switch to... A, let, a, let me just add one point. Ahead. It's not just big business. because That is traditionally the way governments look. They say, you know, where are the big states that we can bring into it? The key element in, in this regional trade is the small and medium enterprises because they end up being the supply chain and the logistical chain. And they can operate across these short uh, uh, lengths across the border with India, Afghanistan, Iran. It, it's easier for them to do that. As it is, if you look at the, the, the underground trade, the black market, uh, for Pakistani goods in India and vice versa. Uh, I, I know uh, across the border how much cattle moves across the border, which is not regulated uh, because you have these small and mid medium sized enterprises that have decided to bypass the constraints of, of their governments on both sides and have created these linkages. Uh, just anecdotally, if you look at the number of major billionaire houses in India, uh, just take a look at how many of them originated from Shikarpur in Sindh, in Pakistan. You know, from yeah. the Hindus and uh, the Bajajas and so on, any number of them. And when I meet those people in, in Bombay, as I used to frequently when I was running the South Asia Center, I remember one of them said to me, he's now an enormous investor in Goa in, in uh, tourist resorts. And he said to me, he said, you know, Delhi doesn't understand Pakistan. It needs to get out of the way and let us work our own deals with Pakistan. And I think Islamabad needs to learn the same lesson uh, and let the businessmen work together. 
Um, you, you had uh, the case of Muslim Commercial Bank, uh, Mia Mohammed Mancha, I think, revolutionized banking within Pakistan. And if he had been given the license to operate in India, having seen the Indian banking system, I can testify to that. He would have wiped the floor with the Indian banks. He would have taken over the Indian banking system for commercial purposes because he had the systems in place. Uh, I think it's that kind of competition which is really needed. Yeah, and anecdotally, I mean, I, I remember when I was at Albright Stonebridge Group uh, here in DC and demonetization happened in India and the price of tomatoes in Chandigarh and Indian Punjab collapsed because there was no cash. And at that same time in Punjab on the Pakistani side, tomatoes were at sky high prices. And I was just wondering to myself, what if we had trade linkages there, the benefit to Indian farmers and the benefit to Pakistani consumers would be immense. And the state would also win because there obviously are with trade come tax flows, right? And foreign currency flows. But again, I think both capitals are sort of in the way of these developments for whatever reasons um, that, that may suit them at that point in time. But, you know, in Iran, we have the same thing in terms of gasoline trade. With Afghanistan, we have the same thing with wheat and sugar trade that everyone in Pakistan complains about. And so that inability to formalize these markets is, is really, uh, I would say, and I think you will agree, holding back South Asia's development, not only Pakistan's development as a whole. It's the world's least interconnected region at the moment. And yeah. if only we can change that, then the, the fortunes of the ordinary people in the region will dramatically increase. Going, going back to your book, um, a couple of other things, stories that stood out to me that you know, were interesting and interesting points were made. The first was sort of Jim Mattis's connections to Pakistan, very early connections that I think hardly anyone, if, no one's, if someone's not read your book, they probably don't know about this. So I want you to share that, that story about how is he connected to Pakistan's role in the war on terror? Um, and in the war in Afghanistan. And then second, General Kayani, and, and the fact that, again, many Pakistanis sort of forget the key role he played um, at a very precarious point in time for Pakistan, um, both militarily as well as in terms of the transition to democracy. So I want you to touch upon both these characters and the role they played in the country. Certainly, I'm happy to do that. Um, I've known General Mattis uh, for quite some time and work very closely with him and respect him uh, enormously. Uh, we also have a common love of books. Of course, you can't match his library, his personal library, because um, that's the only thing he really possesses uh, in his home is, is something like 9,000 books. I he gave away a few thousand at some point. So it must be around the 7,000 <laughs> 7, range. So my own Puny collection um, won't even compare with his collection, but he loves to read and he loves history. And, and I love history, and so we had something in common. And we would talk about books and exchange ideas as well as books. And I'm very proud to say that I introduced him to Babar Nama uh, because he was unaware of what a great general Zahiruddin Babar was. And that, that is a fantastic book, by the way. Again, if someone's not read Babar Nama, they don't, you cannot understand South Asian history without reading that book. Exactly. But you also understand the enormous intellect of the man uh, who was a military genius, but also an anthropologist and an etymologist and so many other things. Um, and of course, uh, one of the reasons I, I wanted to share it with Jim Mattis was that uh, he mentions meeting one of my direct ancestors who was the head of our tribe uh, in the Salt Range uh, at Malot. And so this is near Kalar Kahar. And so I, in any case, that, you know, that, that was just one of those things that, that tied us together. Now, the story that you asked me to, to recite was when I was looking at the raid on Abbottabad, I wanted to go back in history to the beginning of the US invasion of Afghanistan. And I remember a story that Jim Mattis had told me once after he had stopped in my office after a, a day on the hill, uh, which you would do from time to time. And we were chatting and he told me a story about how he 
had his troops ready at Kandahar airport to, to take over the heights of Tora Bora uh, using the experience of the operation in the American West when they captured Geronimo. But they, they took all the heights and they could observe everything and they hemmed him in and they captured him. And he he'd had his people do a computer map of Tora Bora and they had the troops and they were going to take all the heights and make sure nobody moved in or out of Tora Bora and they would get Bin Laden dead or alive. And he, he made the proposal to his boss, which I added two and two and, and got four, which was Tommy Franks, the CENTCOM commander in Tampa, Florida. And, and the, just as the planes were ready for takeoff, the plan was shot down. And then I discovered in my own research and in my interviews with the leaders of the CIA teams that had gone into Afghanistan as a precursor to the invasion, that they had actually asked for military help. Mm. But Tommy Franks never gave that. And so there was a complete mess up on the American side. Now, the background, he told me the story and he said, I know that you will never tell this story in public because you're a friend. I said, I will but I will tell it only when you give me permission. So when he uh, left the uh, uh, left CENTCOM and moved to Stanford, in that window before he became Secretary of Defense, I called him and I said, Jim, let me tell you a story. And I repeated the story and I said, can I now use it? And he said, yes, now you can. And so I quickly put it in. I'm glad I didn't wait because had I waited till he became Secretary of Defense, he would have probably said no. Said no. And so the background to that was that when the United States invaded Afghanistan, there were six CIA teams uh, from north to south, Alpha, Bravo, Charlie, Delta, Echo. And Echo was the one in Kandahar. Uh, they were there to foment trouble for the Taliban. But they didn't have any troops. And so Task Force 58 which was a naval expeditionary force was set up. And Jim Mattis was the first Marine who was given uh, command of a naval expeditionary force. He had made a name for himself in Kuwait in the first uh, uh, battle against Iraq when they invaded Kuwait. Uh, then he'd made a name in Iraq. He was a brigadier general at that time. He brought his whole team over and uh, he went to Pakistan and made a deal with the military uh, headquarters at the Joint Chiefs of Staff with the Director General Operations um, so that the Marines could actually surreptitiously land in Pasmi Harbor and be kept out of sight during the day and at night transported to Jacobabad. And from there, they went to what was known as Objective Rhino, mm. which later became FOB Rhino and then Camp Rhino, the largest U.S. camp in, in southern Afghanistan, which was close to Kandahar. And this was supposed to be the, the place from where they would launch the military operation to disrupt the center of gravity of the Taliban, which was Kandahar. And that's what happened. They linked up with the CIA in Kandahar. And so Jim Mattis was then taken out, but he went back as CENTCOM commander. And he went back because he knew the region, he knew the people, and uh, he knew what to do and how to do it. And he earned the respect of his counterparts uh, in that time. The second question was General Kiani. He took over from General Parvez Musharraf after General Musharraf was forced to relinquish the uniform and remain only as president. And he inherited what was essentially an army that had been depleted enormously by sending people into the civil, uh, by using them for political purposes, and by reducing the amount of professionalism and training that was needed to keep it on edge. And so Kiani's first objective was to turn that thing around and professionalize the forces, which he did. He made the first year the year of the soldier, the second year was the year of training, and he set up a complete uh, curriculum as well as reintroduced and reinvigorated the curriculum at the Staff College, at the uh, School of Infantry and Tactics in Quetta, 
Uh, and you also set up a, a mechanism to train people in counterinsurgency warfare. Um, in the Pubby Hills, there was a, a replica of what they found in Fatah so that they could practice before they arrived uh, on the scene in Fatah. And a lot of people don't know that the victory that is ascribed to General Rahil Sharif for clearing out Fatah uh, was really begun during General Kiani's reign because six of the seven agencies had been cleared under his command. It was only North Waziristan that he was delaying. And that was because he didn't want to have, uh, that's my understanding, a long front extending into the Punjab because of the links between the Pakistani jihadis and the Taliban and Al-Qaeda. And so it was only after he left that the groundwork was prepared, in fact, it was ready, and when General Sharif came, Rahil Sharif could take advantage of that. The other person that deserves credit for that is the Air Force Chief, Rao Kalma, uh, Sulaiman Kamar, who worked with General Kiani. They identified all the targets, and they geotagged them so that when the moment came, the army could move on a dime, as it were, and quickly move in. And they already had something like 37 or 40,000 troops in there which were available after the SWAT operation had been complete. So what used to delay Kiani's decision-making was that he was always waiting for the public reaction to support him. And I think that, that became a problem um, over time. Uh, and then, of course, when he, uh, he was given the extension by Mr. Zardari, that I think made him vulnerable to all kinds of attacks and and machinations from within the political system. So, I mean, those are very interesting stories. The first one with Mattis was fascinating because when I was in grad school and reading some of your work and trying to understand the war as well, um, I read William Darlimple's Return of a King, which was a fascinating account. And it sort of brought to, you know, it, it lit a light bulb in terms of how little has changed in the war in Afghanistan today versus, you know, back in the first Anglo-Afghan war or the second Anglo-Afghan war and the bases are the same, the tracks are the same. So the fact that Jim Mattis was able to read American history and apply it in a unique way, decision-making went another way in terms of whether bin Laden was caught, uh, could have been caught or not. But that was fascinating. And then with Kayari, I want to segue into what's happening today in Pakistan, right? Because you made a couple of interesting points that sort of, um, raise concerns, at least for in my head, about what's going on, which is many have already written about it. We had Mathiullah John's uh, kidnapping yesterday. Your book, when it came out, for example, with the book launches had to be cancelled and there was concern around that. But what we're seeing from a lot of analysts writing within and outside Pakistan is that Pakistan's democratic transition is regressing. And what has emerged, at least in the last few years, is a sort of hybrid regime uh, that is backed up by a growing involvement of the military in the economic and uh, non-military affairs of the state. And again, that is something that happened in the Musharraf era. You talked about how that weakened the military. So I want to get your perspective in terms of how do you see this hybrid regime uh, emergence, emergence of hybrid regime in Pakistan? And if the military is getting so deeply involved in non-military affairs in the state, does that again, raise concerns about long-term strength of the military itself on its core mission and its core purpose. Because again, we have another military chief with an extension as well. So just curious to hear your thoughts on, on what's going on today in the country. Certainly. And, and here, for those that are willing to, to do the heavy lifting, um, I would recommend that people take a look or dip into some chapters of my earlier book, Crossed Swords, where I raised some of these issues and which remain, which is on the nature of the military and its role and the nature of the civil military relationship. Because I've not just looked at Pakistan. I mean, over the years, because of my interest in the military, I've studied uh, Indonesia and Brazil and South America and Nigeria also. And uh, there are lessons to be learned. Uh, unfortunately, there are two narratives in Pakistan which my friends uh, and I debate about, particularly my friends 
in the military. And I do have friends in the military, uh, contrary to to the impression that, uh, you know, they, they, they canceled my, my, my book launches in December. Uh, but that was because of uh, special concerns on the part of the army chief. His extension was in the courts. And clearly, this weighed heavily on, on their minds that issues might be raised that would be sensitive. Um, but the book was not banned. And, you know, a lot of people have, have gotten the impression that maybe it was banned. It wasn't. Uh, no, I, I bought it in Pakistan when I was there last I'm time. I'm happy for Liberty Books because they were new to publishing and they apparently are now into the third printing. So good for them that, you know, they're getting the book out. The two narratives that exist in Pakistani minds are, one is of victimhood, which is that there's a vast conspiracy uh, that involves foreign actors and it involves the United States, Israel, um, India, etc. Uh, that is determined to somehow find a way to crush Pakistan. Therefore, it is critical that Pakistan uh, not weaken itself in any way. And they see democracy or fully full-throated democratic voices as being somehow weak. And that this, this weakens the structure that you need discipline and control. Uh, the other is that the military needs to be involved in all these decision-making. Um, as I said at the beginning of our conversation, I think there is enough brain power in the civil society, in the business community, in the educational institutions for a government to be able to make the right decisions, get the right inputs, and then bring the military on board. And there's a lot that the military can gain. Uh, the third, which is a minor narrative, is the one that somehow the military must be given access to uh, the civilian um, bureaucracy. And so you now find a reversal of what Kiani had when he took over. He brought all the military officers back. You now have either retired or serving military officers serving in civilian positions. You now have the Army Welfare Trust, the Frontier Works Organization, and other uh, military institutions, in my view, and from a purely economic perspective, this is inefficient. They are crowding out the private sector by going into big time investments in infrastructure, jobs that can be done by the private sector in Pakistan, which would make Pakistan flourish, and which often require subsidies on the part of the government, which the government can ill afford. Uh, the, the Vice President of, uh, of PAID, Nadeem al-Haq, has written recently about the cost of subsidies. Uh, and there are a lot of reports that Parliament has. But Parliament is complicit in all of this because uh, they and the government feel that somehow they can bring the military on board by buying their loyalty. And I don't think the military likes that either at least not the professionals that I know in the military, because they know that they're being misused by the politicians, hmm. whether it's in the opposition or whether they're in the government, that every time they try and involve the military, it is in order to gain a benefit from that involvement. So I'm a purist. I belong to a military family. And if my brother hadn't persuaded me, I would have been probably been in the military or they may have thrown me out for asking too many stupid questions. But I believe that the role of the military is critical for Pakistan. It has a very specific role and that it should follow the path of the PLA in China and reduce its economic footprint and concentrate, like the Turks did, on the military as a military. Uh, don't go for import substitution simply because it gives the military more authority over production, particularly of defense-related material. Let the civil sector do that for you. The Turks followed the same approach, um, and, and they benefited from it. Uh, I think Pakistan could do the same. I recall uh, ABRI, which was the, uh, the initials used for the Indonesian military when it was a shadow government, because uh, I worked on Indonesia. I w went on a World Bank mission to Indonesia. Um, I saw them firsthand. 
but they had a democratic election and they removed all of that and the country prospered. Now it seems to be reverting back to the shadow government. Uh, I think Pakistan needs to learn from that. Uh, it needs to learn from what Brazil did, but Brazil now is going back. So Pakistan needs to break that trend. Uh, and I think both the military and the civil will prosper as a result. Yeah, I think it's one of those things, right? It's also like a prisoner's dilemma on the side of the political um, system as well, where the gains for involving the military, whether covertly or overtly under coercion or under your own choice, um, seem to be good for one party or the other. And so you have this rinse and repeat cycle of, of collaboration and collusion that continues to exist. And I think in the last couple of years as well, especially, uh, we've just seen a phenomenal rise in retired and serving military involvement in affairs that were otherwise should not have happened. And you're right, General Kayani played a key role in in limiting that. So now you have the Naya Pakistan Housing Society, the PIA, um, the CPEC Authority, and a whole number of other institutions that are run by um, retired or, 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 or serving military officials, which, again, I think Ijaz Heather Saab wrote about it last week or the week before in the Friday Times, where he raised the concern the same way you are raising, which is that if you involve the serving military too much in these affairs, they will not focus on their core job, which is the defense of the state. And the times are changing. We are entering into new ways of fighting warfare. And if your current military leadership is trying to run housing societies, it is not going to focus on how to fight the next wars effectively either. There's also the example of Israel that I think it's worth looking at, which is that uh, Pakistan was set up on the religious basis, so was Israel. Uh, Israel's military is the backbone of their security system, but they built a very vibrant economy. Uh, and a lot of the military people either went into business or went into politics when they retired. And I think that's perfectly fair and good and useful because they're still young when they retire, they're well-educated, they're disciplined, and they are given a set of principles on which to operate, which would be very healthy for the political system, for more of them to be elected. But then they need to work to get that election uh, without fixing the election, and they need to come in and change the system from within to make it much more responsive. And I think it can be done. We have examples from within the military in Pakistan of very successful businessmen who didn't necessarily get subsidies or preferred access, who just worked very hard. Uh, and I, I know many of them, young officers who retired as brigadiers or, or generals and are running enterprises um, in the private sector and competing openly and, and exporting and going to foreign markets and, and making a dent. So there's no reason why that can't happen. Uh, this is not a harangue against the military as such. I think it's more, in my view, a harangue against the politicians that corrupt the system. I'll give you a very specific example. Not many people follow this. But in my earlier book, I, I went through some historical examples of what's called the warrant of precedence. This is the rank order within every country of who is number one, number two, number three, uh, for diplomatic and protocol purposes. But it essentially establishes the rank order of authority in the country. And Pakistan inherited the warrant of precedence from the British colonial authorities. Uh, but over time, that warrant of precedence was changed. Uh, and initially, Ayub Khan was made defense minister, so he suddenly leapt over everyone and, and came to near the top because he was now a minister. But when the U.S. trade uh, military agreement was negotiated, all the service chiefs who were called commanders-in-chief at that time, Army, Navy, and Air Force, all reported to the secretary of the Ministry of Defense, a man mm -hmm. named Sikandar Mirza. And I have minutes of those meetings where he presided over the meeting and he told people to shut up when they needed to be shut up. Which, by the way, still is the way it happens in India when the secretary of defense holds a meeting, the military chiefs report to him. Exactly. Uh -huh. Bangladesh reverted back to that during the, the period when Hasina first took over and Nawaz Sharif went to see 
see her in Dhaka. And when I explained this to him, he said, oh, now I understand. When I arrived at Dhaka, I looked down the reception line and I couldn't see the army chief. And then I saw him at the end. And I said, that's why, because they changed the warrant of precedence. Well, India has also changed it recently. And you'll see new warrant of precedence that I, I posted on my, my Facebook, which, which indicates how they've altered some elements of it but it's still uh, largely similar to what existed at the time of partition. The Pakistani warrant of precedent has been changed by the civil authorities in order to gain favor with the military. Mm. And I think that has upset the balance internally. So what I call a misalliance or an unequal marriage exists within the Pakistani polity because of this weakness on the part of the political system. And I think that's a good place for us to come full circle because um, I wanted to conclude this discussion with your perspective on where does Pakistan go from here? You have a hybrid regime emerging. You have significant developmental issues where if you now look at Pakistan um, you know, on some indicators as sub-Saharan Africa levels, right? And it's not because it has remained, it's because it has remained stagnant while the rest of sub-Saharan Africa has caught up with it. Um, what would be your advice to the prime minister or the powers that be in the country in terms of how to move this country forward and really fulfill the vast potential that it actually has, both in terms of becoming a regional economic hub, but also a geographic uh, power that brings uh, stability and integrates the rest of South Asia in a way that otherwise would not be possible without a Pakistan that is stable and successful? Um, I, I should be very humble and modest in my ability to affect change within Pakistan. Uh, but that said, uh, let me suggest what I've been saying during our conversation, which is it has to start inside Pakistan. And then the external factors uh, will automatically fall into place. The internal balance of the political system within Pakistan needs to be fixed and very seriously. Uh, there needs to be a look uh, now that we have a census of sorts uh, at realigning the administrative units of Pakistan in a way that they counterbalance each other rather than have uh, a disproportionate share going to one province or the other. And the division should not be on ethnic or linguistic grounds. It should be on administrative grounds. And the model exists for the current divisions of Pakistan that could be made the the base of the political system within the country and the administrative system within the country. Then it needs to look at where Pakistan wants to go in five years and 10 years. And you need both the civil and the military involved, but you also need the third part of this tripod, which is civil society and the business community involved in, in having a framework for where you want to be five years from now, 10 years from now. You're going to face enormous challenge in weather and climate change. Um, the glaciers are melting. The, the um, underground water system has been damaged. Uh, India has added to that by damaging the aquifers on the Indian side of, of Punjab border. Um, so you're going to face a water shortage in the country. Um, then education and health, without which you can't really build uh, the economic base for a manufacturing society and or a service-oriented society. Uh, all of these things have to be done simultaneously. You can't do them seriatim. And I think you will have to have a more statesman-like approach in Parliament on both sides of the aisle so that you're not just looking at the next six months or looking at the next elections, you're looking beyond for your children and your grandchildren. This is something that needs to be done. Otherwise, the map of the world is constantly changing and Pakistan risks being one of those victims where um, things happen in and around it in such a way that the map is altered. And I don't think that the sacrifices of people that led to the creation of Pakistan and, and that have created a vibrant young economy even today uh, deserve anything better than 
to be able to bequeath something to their children and grandchildren that they would be proud of. No, I think that that's that's great counsel, and I'll conclude this. You know, one thing that I tell a lot of people in Pakistan when I talk to them is that the world currently sees Pakistan as a problem to be managed and not as an opportunity to be benefit that can benefit the rest of the world. And I think you're absolutely right. You have to have this agreement of five, ten years between civil society, military, and political leadership on how do we convert that perception in 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 a way that is sustainable where the world wants to invest here the world wants to take advantage of what a lot of uh, countries cannot offer the way pakistan does and i think that really is an opportunity and again i'll i'll use your words that there are 10 to 20 years left to make that a reality because what we have the youth buzz today um is a dividend potentially but is also a ticking time bomb so um thank you so much for your time this was a wonderful discussion and um to all our listeners check out uh, shuja sahab's books uh, both the latest one as well as the ones that have come before it and the publications because they tell you a lot about where the country is even today and where it's coming from so thank you shuja sahab thank you azair pleasure